minem Galileum condemnare. Sanctus est. Tantum tibi ipsi molesto seris. Disintelleggere nozioni a me molestia, Claudia. E cremoto stazio. Ista plebecula ibi fors. Governor, <laughs> Ma avadanas dektidim kazav aloh. Halela shabatna, konsul. Taser. Asir laam. Choda al-drakin. Nidai. Mnadzekin. Akulona biadvia satulek birushlem lechewechu min chamesh. Kiantis bon mot aloh. Kachel chadje chodali na gotah. Eccellenza, eccellenza, questo. Vrescachenaia, la hodala, le rasciasa ghia di Anasdna, Bramlehewe, Reshamon, Ravubaish, di Ishulunlech, Bardawid, Udahua Flana, gubernator, di Humeshia Hadoneino, Malkan, Dabar, di Yehudea. Ezaredi kevarei estakali lunminda le kaizar konsu. Perte istum huk. Kant, 
pontificestui mihi tetradideunt, me interficere te volunt, cur, cuit fecisti. Rexestu? Venim meum non este hoc mundo, si eset, putas ministri mei isto sic tradre mei, si visent. Ant malca, ergu rexestu. Testimonium veritati perebeam. Omnes qui veritatem audiunt. Vocem meam audiunt. Veritas. Quides veritas. Veritas. Truth. What is truth? It's probably the most important question that people need to wrestle with. It's a question which has been debated since the beginning of time, since there's been words to describe the concept. And it's a question that if we are going to be able to deal with a movie like The Passion, or deal with spirituality in any sense of um, ability to understand, it's a question that we have to come to terms with. Because without an honest understanding of what truth is, and without a willingness to be able to move ahead in search of real truth, the best we can get is just somebody's opinion. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at truth. What I want to do, though, is as we begin our quest in truth, I want to give you a few definitions. Because... You can't really understand what truth is until you define it. And even before I give you those definitions, what I want to do is I want to give you a couple of quotes from people who have talked about truth throughout the years and some of their ideas about truth. Now, the people I'm going to quote are not the type of people who are usually quoted in Christian churches. They're actually people who are from other religions and other thought processes and those sorts of things. But I thought it would be good to hear what they have to say about truth because a lot of times people push back and they say, all we hear is like, kind of your, your biblical perspective of truth. Like, what do other people say about truth? So let's start from outside of the Bible and we're, we'll work our way towards what the Bible says about truth. Confucius says this about truth. He says, three things cannot long be hidden. The sun, the moon, and the truth. And Galileo writes, all truths are easy to understand once they are discovered. The point is to discover them. I like what Buddha has to say about truth. He says, believe nothing just because a so-called wise person said it. Believe nothing just because a belief is generally held. Believe nothing just because it is said in ancient books. Believe nothing just because it is said to be of divine origin. Believe nothing just because someone else believes it. Believe only what you yourself test and judge to be true. And this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to test the things that we call truth and we're going to... Find out, are they really true? And does truth actually even exist? And for some of you, you may be saying, oh, it's all relative. It doesn't matter. It's just totally up to interpretation. But you know what? Nietzsche even speaks to that idea. And this is what he says. Nietzsche's famous for saying God is dead. Remember, he says, on the mountains of truth, you can never climb in vain. Either you will reach a point higher up today or you will be training your powers so that you will be able to climb higher tomorrow. 
So I hope you're willing to climb with me up this mountain of truth in pursuit of understanding what it is and how it might affect us. So let's take a look at the def- definitions. First definition uh, I went to, I, I looked up online different definitions because I wanted to compare a couple of things to make sure that I wasn't getting any biased perspective. So the first definition, I went to Webster's Dictionary online, and this is what they said truth was. Truth is conformity to fact or reality. Exact accordance with that which is or has been or shall be. Second definition was it's the state of being the case or fact. It's the body of real things, events and facts or actuality. I thought, well, let's let's do some other uh, understandings. And so I went to the Cambridge Advanced Learners Dictionary, expecting to get some really deep understanding of what truth was, an advanced understanding of what truth was. And this is what I found. Truth, the quality of being true. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was in grade two, my teacher said never define a word by using the word. You just aren't supposed to do that. So I don't know, maybe advanced learning in Cambridge is relative. Who knows? They do redeem themselves, though. The second definition is this, the truth, the real facts about a situation, event or person. And then finally, Princeton University defines truth this way. It's a fact that has been verified. It's conformity to reality or to actuality. So if this is what truth is, if this is how the greatest minds and the the greatest uh, institutions on our earth define truth, why is it? Why is it that so many people say truth is relative? When you ask people about truth today, like the last lady uh, did on on that uh, video, and that was just from downtown Toronto not too long ago. Why is it that people say, oh, it's relative, it's up to you, it's up to interpretation? And not only that, some people will go to the point of saying, not only is truth relative, but absolute truth doesn't even exist. If these are what the definitions, why do they hold those opinions? A couple of years ago, I was on exercise with the military. Some of you know that I'm a military chaplain. And on the exercise... It was the end of the day after we had finished our training, and uh, I was sitting around in the command tent with all the, the, the big brass, the colonels and the majors and all stuff like that. And we were talking about things. I think we started talking about a movie and started talking about philosophy and stuff like that. And I thought, well, here's an opportunity. So I asked the question. I said, gentlemen, I have a question for you. Is there such thing as absolute truth? Everything went really quiet. Then the commanding officer of the regiment, the colonel, came over to me and he stood right to my face and he said, Padre, that's what they call me, he said, Padre, There is no such thing as absolute truth. I said, really? I said, is that true? (laughs) He said, yes, it is. He still hadn't figured it out yet. And, And I said, is it absolutely true? And then he pauses and this big grin comes over his face and he says, I guess you got me, didn't you? Didn't you? You see, when people make statements like there is no such thing as truth, that we cannot know the truth, they are self-defeating statements. Because as soon as you make a statement like that, it makes the statement itself meaningless. It's defeated. If there is no truth, then even that statement can't be true. So these concepts that truth is relative, these these concepts that truth does not exist are, are really foolishness. If we stop and honestly examine those types of things, it doesn't make sense. But just in case it does make a little bit of sense, let's put truth, truth to the relativity test. Okay, simple question. Two plus two equals four. Good, you all passed grade two math. If I was to say to you, no, it doesn't equal four, 
It, it equals five. You know, you might think it equals four, but, but my interpretation of two plus two is that it equals five. You'd think I'm like cuckoo or something. You'd, you'd wonder what I, what I, you know, whether I really understood the world or, or maybe I, you know, there was something wrong with me. Every one of us understand the simple idea that, no, when you add the number two plus the number two, it equals four. And it always equals four. And some people say, well, what if you had like two apples and you added them to two oranges? You know, well, OK, so the truth then is you have two apples and two oranges is what it equals or it equals four fruit. Right. So it's the relativity may be in the specific thing, but the actual when the mathematical equation always is two plus two equals four. You can't get around that. But let's compare it to something that's maybe a little bit more difficult to, to be able to uh, find out exactly. How about this statement? The New Testament is one of the most historically accurate ancient documents known to man. Now, when I say a statement like that, what do you think? Probably the second one's a little bit harder to to kind of agree with because you say, well, I'm not 100 percent sure. But just because you're unsure, does that make it non-true? No, all it means is that, you know, there are two things. First of all, there are a few more factors that uh, come into a, a statement like that. But secondly, there's a little bit of extra work you have to do to find out whether it's true or not. But whether it's true or not is not something that's beyond our ability to find out. It just means we have to work at it. See, both examples are not true because I accept their accuracy. But they are true in spite of my acceptance. So if there is such a thing as absolute truth, and it's, just, it's not just a matter of our opinion, where do we find it? Where do we find truth? If it really does exist, where do we find it? I thought, well, if I was going to fix my car and I wanted to know how to fix my car, I wasn't going to take it to the garage. I was going to fix it to myself. What would I do? I'd probably go to Canadian Tire or a store somewhere like that. And I'd buy a, a fix it manual that was specifically meant for my car. And say if I was going to fix the brakes. I'd open it up and I'd flip through the pages and I'd find the section on brakes. And I'd, I'd read it through and I'd understand it. And I would I would say, OK, I need to do this, this, this. I'd make sure I have the tools and the parts that I need. Then I'd go to my car. I'd begin to take off the wheel and I'd begin to work on the parts. And as I interacted with the book and I interacted with fixing the car, I would realize that what's in the book is true because it matches what's on the car. And I would be able to fix my car. And, and through the experience of interaction, I would be able to verify its truth. So if I'm going to get a manual to fix my car, wouldn't it make sense that if I really want to understand truth and if I want to find what truth is and what that means for my life and how I find that, wouldn't it make sense that I get a manual for my life? Something that I can interact with and, and test and see if it's really true? I think that's what we need to do. And that's what I want to suggest to you this morning is that the, the Bible, the New Testament, is that manual. It is that manual for our life that we can take a look at, that we can test, that we can try out and use, and we can see that it's true. But more importantly, we can even test that manual and check that it's true even before we interact with it. And that's what I want to prove to you this morning. I want to prove to you this second question, or the second statement, that the New Testament is the most historically accurate ancient document known to man. Now, in order to be able to prove that, I've got to put it to the same test that any other ancient document would have. And there are a couple of questions that people usually ask when it comes to the, history, the credibility of the New Testament. The first question is this. 
Well, hasn't the Bible we have today been changed over the years so that it's no longer accurate to the original? And that's a fair question because a lot of people are unsure about that. They're saying, well, you know, isn't it just interpretations? You know, maybe it used to say what it was supposed to say, but people have changed it over time and with all the translations. And now it doesn't really mean what it was originally written for. It's a fair question. It's a question we need to be able to answer. The second question is this. Is there proof, even if it wasn't changed over the years, is there proof that the original story was accurate? That all the things they talk about Jesus and his resurrection and death, all those things, is there proof that the historical content is accurate? And again, I say yes, and I want to show you. So there's three things that scholars do when they are testing the credibility of an ancient document. There's three filters. Here's the first filter. First filter is the number of copies. What scholars will do is they will gather up all of the ancient copies that they have together. And they will say, how many different copies of these texts or portions of copies of these texts do we have? Because the reason that's important is the more copies you have, the more opportunity you have to compare them to one another to see if there's any variance. Okay, so that's why it's a very important uh, first test. The second one is the time gap between the oldest existing copy and the original. Now, remember when you're probably a kid or maybe in high school or university or whatever, and you you played that game where you lined up a whole bunch of people and the first person whispered a sentence into the ear of of the the next person. And that sentence went all the way down the line. By the time it got to the last person, what usually happened? It it didn't make any sense at all, right? In fact, it was so far from what the original sentence was, like it had nothing to do in relationship. And if it had even one word similar, that was usually pretty good because it just gets jumbled along the way. So that's why the time gap between the oldest existing copy and the original is very important because the longer it takes, if there are thousands of years between when it was originally written and the copy that we now have available, there's potentially a thousand years worth of errors or changes that could have happened in there. But if the time gap is very close, then it's more likely accurate. The third filter is this, the amount of variance between all of the known copies. Again, they take the first two, put all the information together, they test everything together, and they they go word by word, letter by letter, comma by comma, and they say, is there any textual variance? Is there any variance at all in the text in all of these different copies? And the greater the variance, the less reliable that text is. So these are the three filters that any ancient document are put through. So let's take a look at how the New Testament measures up. You can see here I have a comparison chart. And across here, you've got ancient writings. We're going to compare the New Testament, Homer's Iliad, which is a a set of uh, ancient poetry, much like what uh, Shakespeare was. Um, The writings of Caesar and the writings of Plato. Now, especially the writings of Caesar and Plato, none of us would ever question those. We just accept, yeah, of course it's true because they're ancient. But when it comes to the New Testament, people all the time question it's true. So how does the New Testament stack up to these three? By the way, these are some of the the absolute best ancient texts known to man. So some of the, the, high, the ones that have the highest standard. So let's compare them. You can see that the existing number of ancient copies, the New Testament has over 24,000. Over 5,000 of those are in the original Greek language. Compared to Homer's Iliad, which is considered the, most, uh, the best ancient text known to man other than the New Testament, with 643. Caesar's writings with 10, and Plato with seven. Clearly, the New Testament has more copies to start from. How about the earliest existing copy? Remember the time gap between when it was written to the copy we have? The New Testament, the closest manuscripts are only 25 years away from the original copy. Within 
a lifespan of a person. So if they started making errors and writing things that weren't true, somebody would have been able to correct that because people were still alive to have been around for the original writing. Homer's Iliad, 500 years from the original. Caesar, 1,000. And Plato, 1,200 years. Again, the New Testament by far exceeds all of the other ancient documents. And then finally, how about agreement between the copies? You can see that the New Testament has 99.8% accuracy compared to Homer's Iliad. Now, Caesar and Plato's books, they don't have the accuracy rating on them because since there are so few manuscripts and since they were all taken from about the same time, scholars actually believe that they were most likely the exact same copy of the original copy. So they wouldn't expect any textual variance. So for those, even if they are 100%, that's what they would expect anyways, because there's not a lot of different copies to have big variants. But what is interesting is 0.2%. What makes that even more significant is the fact that there are so many copies. Remember, you're comparing 24,000 copies. That's 24,000 opportunities to have a variance. Yet there's only 0.2% variance. So the, the, the percentage of opportunity for something going wrong is far greater for the New Testament because of all the copies, yet it's far smaller than even something like the Homer Iliad, which is considered to be an incredibly accurate ancient document. And what's more, that 0.2% scholars say doesn't change the context of any of the sentence, doesn't change the meanings of any of the sentences. All they simply are are usually grammatical or spelling errors. But since they're variances, they have to record them as variances. When we take a look at the New Testament from the filters that we would filter any other ancient document from, it's easy to see that the New Testament is not only a reliable, but it is the most reliable from a historical perspective of any other document. Now, you might ask the question, but are there extra biblical sources that could also confirm what we know in the New Testament? And there are. And one of the most significant is written by a person called Flavius Josephus. And Josephus was a Jew uh, who lived uh, shortly after the time of Christ and who was observing what was happening with the Christian, Christian sects. Now, he was what they call a hostile witness. And what's important is that when a hostile witness says things that actually makes the original thing true, it gives it even more credibility because he has absolutely no motive or no benefit in verifying the facts. And here's what he says. He says, And there arose about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of marvelous deeds, a teacher of men who received the truth with pleasure. He led away many Jews and also many of the Greeks. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross on his impeachment by the chief men among us, those who had loved him at first did not cease. And even now the tribe of Christians, so named after him, has not yet died out. See, what's significant about that is here you have a person who actually coming from the Jewish culture thinks that Christians are this breakaway sect that are, are no good and uh, not well liked within the Jewish community. You have a hostile person verifying what we find in the New Testament. From an archaeological perspective, we know this. It says, on a whole, archaeology Archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by uh, experience of excavation of Palestine. And here's a quote. Uh, Sir William Ramsey was one of the world's greatest archaeologists. His thorough investigation into Luke's gospel and the book of Acts led him to the conclusion that they were mid-first century documents that are historically reliable. So if history shows that the New Testament is reliable, if archaeology shows that the New Testament is reliable and says that Luke is a historian of the first class, 
What are some of the other evidences we have? Well, even Luke himself, as he wrote the book of Luke to his friend Theophilus to help him understand, this is what he writes in Luke 1, verse 3 and 4. He says, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. See, Luke was a doctor back in those days, and his main goal was to write an accurate account of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that way everybody would know exactly what happened and know that this is the truth. From a doctor's perspective, accuracy would be very, very important for him. And he, he wouldn't want to just portray some kind of thing for his own motive, but he really wanted to make sure that people would have through the years, and especially his friend Theophilus, would have this account that he could take a look at and understand. And what about from the Gospel of John? John writes this, Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And the man who saw it has given testimony. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. And he testifies that you may believe. See, the writers of the Gospels, they weren't just kind of writing offhand, but they were collecting information from eyewitness accounts who saw and experienced what happened to Jesus Christ in those days. And so when we take all of this evidence and we put it together, we can say, yes, the Gospels are true. The Gospels are a reliable manual for life that we can take a look at, we can read, we can interact with, and now as we interact with, we can even verify it with our own lives that it is true. So what's the conclusion of all of these things? That the New Testament is definitely the most historical, accurate document known to man. And one of the questions from the movie, I know a lot of people after they saw the movie, uh, as different people talked to me about it, they said, well, Pastor, like, did it really happen that way? Like, was it, was it that bloody and gory? And were they that cruel to Jesus? And, and was, was Jesus that strong throughout the whole thing? And see, without having a New Testament that we know is reliable, it'd be a question that we couldn't really answer because it would just be an opinion question. But now that we know that we have historical documents which have um, taken the account of... Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and accurately put them down, we can, we can have an opinion on that. And based on what I know in the reading of the Gospels, yes, Mel Gibson's movie generally is an accurate portrayal of the death of Jesus Christ. Did he take some liberties? Yeah, he took a couple of liberties. He, he did a little bit of character development in a couple of spots and a couple of, of liberties that um, kind of just you know, made it a little bit more Hollywood. But as a whole, the movie is a good portrayal. Even some of the liberties he took, and many of you who have seen the movie, you've, you know, the, the, the Satan figure that's in there. If you read the gospel accounts, you won't actually read Satan into that the same way that you've seen it in the movie. But what is interesting is, although it's not necessarily in the gospel accounts, the imagery reflects a broader battle that's going on throughout history. This battle between good and evil, the battle between uh, Jesus and, and Satan and Jesus overcoming Satan, crushing the head of the serpent, which I'm going to talk about next week. And so even the imagery and some of the liberties he took, although they're not directly recorded in the Gospels, are, are accurate with the intent of the overall picture of Scripture. I want to leave you with a couple of verses. What Scripture says about truth. And then we're going to watch uh, another little video clip. This is what the Bible says. John 5:24. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and I will not be con- and, and he will not be condemned. He has crossed over from life, from death to life. 
John 8, 31, 32 says this to the Jews who had believed him. Jesus said, if you hold my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus also said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And finally, the words we saw on the screen before Pilate asks this incredible question. Truth. What is truth? Jesus says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Are we on the side of truth this morning? Do we really honestly with all of our heart want to search out those things are true? And if we do, are we willing to go after them? Let's take a look at the video and just see that interaction between Pilate and Claudia once again. Veritas, Claudio, e a Maudis, e un cognoscis quando dicitur. Ita, audio. Numet tu? Comodo. Potes me dicere. Si non vis veritate maudire. Nemo, tibi dicere potest. Meritas. Claudius says to Pilate, if you will not hear the truth, no one can tell you. And I want to challenge you this morning, all of us, to really listen for the truth. To listen with all of our heart and all of our soul, with all of our body. And when we hear the truth, to embrace it with all that we can. And to run with it. To live it. To interact with it and to see that it works. There's a couple of next steps that I want to leave you with. Things that I just want to encourage you to do over the next uh, weeks to come. First of all, I want to encourage you to take your Bible and to explore the truth for yourself. We've seen how the New Testament is a reliable document, a historically accurate document. Not only is it a historically accurate document, but it is a document that speaks the very words of life into your life. And so if you have a Bible at home, maybe you haven't read it in a long time. Maybe it's just kind of on the the shelf and it's collecting dust and you need to pull it out and begin to go through it again. Understand that life manual so that way you can begin the way to live the way God called you to. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is if you're visiting with us today, especially, I want to encourage you to come back for the next several weeks and continue to explore the truth with us as we continue to unpack the passion, understanding the questions like, well, why did Jesus have to die the way that he did? Why the way that it was portrayed in the movie? And then after that, who really killed Jesus? Both of these questions are important and they are things that are relevant to our life. Often it's the implication of those truths that keep us from acting them out. And finally, I want to encourage those of you who really uh, are seeking the truth and want to explore this concept of Christianity and Christ and spirituality to a new level. Sign up for the Alpha Course and explore it with others. 
You can sign up out in the foyer. And the Alpha course is a course where you come and you, you join for dinner. You get some free food, which is really good. And then um, you sit around a table with a group of other people, probably similar to yourself, who are exploring truth and spirituality. And around that table, you get to watch a short video and then ask questions. And hopefully your questions are answered. If you're a person who is seeking after truth and you have questions, Alpha is probably one of the greatest tools that we have available to you to help you explore the truth. So again, on your way out, please sign up. And if you don't have a Bible and you're saying, well, Pastor, I don't even have a Bible on the shelf, then we've got some visitor packages for you. And you can get those on the way out as well. Pick one up, go through it. There's some tapes here and some hard questions. There's a New Testament that you can read through. And hopefully we'll be able to move ahead on this journey of truth together. We're not going to sing uh, anymore. Uh, there's no more songs at the service. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you a blessing. So I'll ask you to stand up for the benediction. I want to bless you today, first of all, with the knowledge that absolute truth does exist. And we can know it. And because we can know it, we can test things and we can see that a book like the New Testament is truth. It's a place where we find truth. It's a place where we can take that truth and apply it to our lives. I want to bless you with the courage to read that truth, to understand that truth, to deal with its implications and allow those implications to stir your heart to live a life differently than you ever lived before. Go in Jesus' name with his truth. Amen.